he starts explaining, you know, what happened. And if you're here, where's everybody else? And he just points up on the side of the mountain. He goes, they're, they're up there. They're dead. Her capture by Iraqi insurgents and rescue by U.S. Special Forces back in 2003 captured the attention of a nation. One of the most extraordinary stories of bravery from the war in Afghanistan. A team of Navy SEALs was sent into the mountains, but only one SEAL came out alive. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. If you haven't already, please subscribe, download, and leave us a review. Our guest today is Sergeant First Class Nicholas Moore of the 75th Ranger Regiment. He's going to tell us about two historic hostage rescue missions that he took part in. First, the rescue of Jessica Lynch in March 2003 in Iraq. And secondly, the rescue of Navy SEAL Marcus Luttrell in Afghanistan in July 2005, a dramatic mission which was the subject of the best-selling book Lone Survivor and the highly popular movie of the same name starring Mark Wahlberg. Today, Nick is going to give us his unique perspective on both missions as someone who was actually on the ground and executed the rescues. He's also going to talk about his riveting memoir, Run to the Sound of Guns. We're honored to feature Sergeant First Class Nicholas Moore of the 75th Ranger Regiment as today's hero behind the headlines. So I was born and raised in a small town in Kansas um, and, you know, uh, grew up hunting and fishing and just doing all the normal Midwest outdoor activities. And uh, we just kind of always felt there was a little bit higher calling for what we were supposed to do and so junior year of high school my brother decided that he was going to talk to the recruiters and sign a contract and and that that's what he wanted to do and i kind of molded over for about a week and and decided that i should should go too and you know we didn't know anything about the rangers at the time that we signed at 17 years old Mm -hmm. um but you know speaking to the recruiters in the recruiter station and you know they knew that we played sports and we were really active outdoors and stuff he goes you guys are you're going to have fun in the army, but you're never going to be happy if we didn't pursue, you know, a ranger career. And they kind of told us how to work that through the, uh, <clears throat> through the MEP station, the, where you go, you know, as a kid and sign all your paperwork and get your contract and all your legal documents. And so, uh, you know, that went through and, and then, uh, uh, we, we graduated high school. And then a week after we graduated high school, you know, we're sitting down at Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training. And then, uh, right over to Airborne School and then the Ranger Indoctrination Program as it was then. Now it's the uh, Ranger Assessment Selection Program. So, And that was uh, 1999? That was, yeah, that was all 1999. So that was uh, June through uh, December of 99. And then we got uh, both of us got assigned to uh, 2nd Ranger Battalion out here at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, which is now uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord. Both assigned to Bravo Company. Uh, I went to 1st Platoon and he went to 3rd and after about a year, I think he was uh, asked to go do the sniper selection in the battalion. And so he got picked up to go over to sniper platoon and I stayed on the line and we continued to work together. And, you know, in that capacity, he was a sniper assigned to the, the company or at times our platoon and, um, you know, through training scenarios. And then in uh, 2001, uh, it was 
uh, my turn to go to ranger school. So uh, I went down to ranger school in August to do the pre-ranger course at the ranger regiment and passed that. So uh, um, on 9-11, I was in ranger school. And so it's always, it's kind of a joke that we have, you know, amongst guys in the battalion, you know, prior to 9-11 actually happening was that, you know, something's going to kick off in the world and we're going to be stuck in the one place where we can't go participate and we're going to kind of get left behind. And so, uh, you know, that actually happened and it was kind of a comical moment when I got back, but uh, the battalion hadn't, hadn't deployed in support of uh, Operation Enduring Freedom yet. Um, The battalion was actually deployed forward in uh, Germany in uh, Grafenbeer doing the big training center over in Germany and when 9-11 happened it froze everything and so then you know go through ranger school pass the first phase of ranger school and then go up to the second phase of ranger school and the the ranger instructors at the time were kind of let me oh I'll back up so 9-11 happens it's like the second day of the course and we're standing in formation waiting to go do uh, land navigation and and some other you know check the box training things that you had to qualify for to continue to to, uh, progress through the course and all right are running around scurrying and we're standing in formation kind of going you know what's going on and you know time hacks are being missed and we're like whoa we're getting out of here kind of late and so they come out and you know they're asking if anybody has family that works at the world trade center and we're like what's that have to do with anything yeah that's weird you know yeah. and then about what a half hour 45 minutes later they come out and say hey who's seriously this is not this is a legitimate question we're not trying to lie to anybody who has parents that work at the pentagon and so one kid raised his hand he said you need to go inside and call and so that luckily that one that one ranger uh his dad was out of the office because the plane actually destroyed his office oh my god and so his dad was uh in virginia at the time wow and uh so he got lucky on that one but he was kind of a mess for about a few days until his dad called the school his dad's a colonel at the time and called the school and said hey no please tell him that everything's okay and i'm i'm good and i'll talk to him when he gets the chance i i know you guys are in the course and so that was you know, that was good for him. And, and so, uh, you know, past the first phase of ranger school and go up to the second phase of ranger school. And now we're looking at, you know, end of September, October. And so, uh, finished all ranger school for that phase and, uh, we're getting graded in, in evals. And so the RIs wheel the TV out on the cart. And so this is right when uh three third ranger battalion is making the jump onto a uh, Kandahar objective, uh, Rhino. And so they let us watch. And so all the guys from third battalion are crying cause they're, they're missing it and they're, they're mad and upset. And <laughs> it was kind of funny cause yeah. we had gotten word that, you know, a first battalion hasn't gone yet. And second battalion hasn't gone yet. So we're just kind of sitting there laughing at them. It's like, Oh, we haven't missed our chance yet. And so, uh, we pass and, and go on down to Florida and, uh, wrap up ranger school three weeks later, graduate, come back, and, you know, get ready to, to go on our deployment in the spring of 2002. And so uh, it was interesting because we kind of got lessons learned from what what 375 experienced in their initial push into Afghanistan. And then when 1st Battalion came over, you know, that's Operation Andakana in, you know, the early part of 2002 with uh, Roberts Ridge and Takugar. And that was a huge deal and the lessons learned. And it was really interesting to talk to guys that I had been in ranger school with and friends that I had you know, at 1st Battalion that I went through basic training and airborne school and, and RIP with and, and said, hey, man, that were on that mission and said, Hey dude, what was that all about? And so to hear the, that story, you know, firsthand account was kind of eye opening as to what could be happening. And unfortunately for us, you know, uh, to talk, uh, operation Anaconda kind of pushed everybody, all the fighters back out of Pakistan. Cause you know, they were expecting us to play the same way the Russians did and, and we didn't. And, um, so that 
first deployment was kind of a bust, if you will, for us, because we didn't really see anything. I mean, we had one gunfight for the platoon. It lasted five seconds. <laughs> what was your first impression of Afghanistan? Uh, well, I, you know, as a kid, I'd never been to, you know, like West Texas or New Mexico, Arizona. So I had no idea what the desert was other than pictures or, or whatever. But to to experience, you know, that, that kind of dry heat and and experience because i mean we came from washington in april and it was in like the 60s and we hit afghanistan and it's in like the high 90s and hundreds in april and you know and it's just getting hotter as the summer goes on and so uh that was definitely eye-opening and right. uh, and what about the people have you ever seen anything as primitive oh as no that? it's even today you know i've been there for you know I was there back and forth for the better part of 15 years of my life. And it's just, it never gets, you never get used to that primitive lifestyle. And I guess for us as a Western culture, you know, it's, it's weird. They're okay with that. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. dirt huts and yeah. junky the cars. Yeah. There's yeah. like one, there's one paved road in Afghanistan and it runs from Kandahar to Bagram and up to, you know, up through Kabul and then up to Bagram, which is not very far outside Kabul. And, uh, that's it. You know, everything else is just dirt, country dirt roads. And, and they, they just, that's how they live. And it's like, man. Yeah. 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 It's like going back in time. Yeah, it really is. You know, I mean, you can still go over there and if you know where to look, you can still find stuff from like Alexander the Great that's still left from, the, you know, the <laughs> Romans. Yeah. That's crazy. And it's just, you know, it's odd. And at that point, there was almost no resistance. No, I mean, it was... There wasn't country. anything. Everybody was great. They were, you know, happy. And you even later in, you know, in the winter of 2003, we went over there and we were kind of up in the in the Konar and up in the mountains and stuff. And, and there are still people that at that point, and I'm sure there are people farther up in um, Nurse, you know, uh, Nangahar and, and the provinces up in the mountains. They still believe the Russians are there. Yeah. <laughs> because they don't, there's just, they don't get any news. So um, it was really, it was odd you know, to go and, Oh, you're here to chase the Russians away, you know, congrats, yeah. you know, yeah, thank for you, you guys. Yeah. And thank you for helping us. And, you know, and then you come back just a couple of years later and kids are throwing rocks at you and, you know, it's, it's so, you know, they're happy one minute and they're, they're mad the next that you're now you're here and you're occupying them the same as the Russians. And it's, you know, yeah. And it's uh, hard, to, it's hard to understand things from their point of view because it's like, it's so very different from ours. Right. Well, and you know, they're a country that has basically always been invaded by somebody and occupied by somebody, whether they want them to or not. And so, so there's no I, way I understand. they understand the bigger, like geopolitical no, you thing. You can try it and yeah. explain it to them, but you know, it's like trying to explain something to somebody from the American old West. They just right. aren't going to get it. Right. Right. So, Okay, your your deployment in Afghanistan ends, and then a few years later, you you end up in uh, in Iraq. Yeah, so been... you know we finished our deployment in uh, 2002, and we thought, okay, great, that's going to be our only. You know, the whole thing in Afghanistan is going to be wrapped up in like six months or so. You know, we're just going to call it done and good. And so then we came home, and then you know everything started winding up with uh, Saddam Hussein and everything in Iraq, and we're like, oh, okay, great, awesome. I guess we're gonna we're going to go over here and play. And, um, so then the, everything, you know, started to fall apart there around Thanksgiving, Christmas time, 2002. And, and so, you know, everything started coming along that, Hey, look, this is going to happen and, and we're going to go. And so, uh, we started leaning forward for all the, the planning and, 
you know, prepping to, to be a part of the invasion for Iraq, which was, you know, for us, it was kind of cool. Cause it's like, okay, great. We're going to go play somewhere else. We, we let the monster out of the box and we're not going to contain it now. Um, you know, so, uh, pushed over, um, you know, we were, uh, initially, uh, launching out of, um, uh, uh, um, cross-border ops and, uh, in, into Western Iraq and, and stuff. And so we had, and there was no resistance out there. And, uh, that was for the first couple of weeks of, of the invasion, maybe the first 10 days or so. Um, and then, you know, we come back off a 24 hour patrol. So, uh, at this time, you know, that's like, um, uh, third Ranger battalion made another combat jump into, uh, H1 and, um, some of the other, you know, outlying places. And so our, our job, that last patrol that we did on, on vehicles was to go es bring them back. Cause they didn't ha have the, you know, was to escort them and make the convoy bigger. And, and so we went and tied in with them, turned around, drove the trucks back on a 24 hour turnaround and, you know, got back in, drove the trucks right up to the tent and the company CPs right there. And then we're all climbing off the trucks and the commander's like, Hey, you got three hours and we're getting ready to, we're going to go do a POW rescue. On March 23, 2003, shortly after the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, U.S. Army Private First Class Jessica Lynch was riding in a convoy of the U.S. Army's 507th Maintenance Company near the city of Nasiriyah, 250 miles southwest of Baghdad, when they took a wrong turn and were ambushed. The Humvee Miss Lynch was riding in was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade, and she was seriously injured. She and five other soldiers were taken prisoner, and another 11 were killed in action. Raped and sodomized during her first three hours of captivity, Miss Lynch was later moved to a hospital in this area where she was treated for a broken arm, broken thigh, and dislocated ankle. Miss Lynch's capture immediately became headline news across the United States. Her rescue was the subject of a popular TV movie called Saving Jessica Lynch. And, you know, I, I'm a 21-year-old smartass. And so I, I'm in the gunner's turret on a Mark 19, and I climbed out of the turret ring and jumped down on the hood. And, I, you know, I'm dog-tired and looked at the commander. And I was like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> and I'm going to bed. Yeah. And right. he's like, no, seriously. No, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so the my squad leader <clears throat> comes in, and he's like, hey, look, the commander's not joking. He's being serious. We're, we're leaving in three hours. Pack your crap. And I was like, where are we going? He's like, well, we're going to Nazaria. And I was like, what is in Nazaria? That's where the Marines are. You know, they're getting handed to them up there because we were getting all the battle updates. And it's like, how come we don't ever get anything where anything's fun? You know, we're right. just out here patrolling through the open desert the on, sand. A, yeah. on a highway. Yeah. And so. Uh, Did you I know said, anything this... about what had happened? We knew that the convoy had, had gotten disoriented and lost and then they kind of got off the route some you know somehow and and I, i'm thinking to myself how is a maintenance unit getting ahead of the forward line i was like how does that how does that happen you know you you stop thinking about the reality of okay now we have missing americans and we have a, a one confirmed pow and you start thinking like how how did the circumstances lead to to this you, you start trying to figure that out and it's like you know and, and it's it's nothing against her you know it's just things happen you know it's it really is and well you're in a strange place and there's you don't know where anything is <clears throat> well and, it, yeah. you know at the, at the time so like um 2003 you know um support elements not all of them at the time had not all the units had 
the funding and the and the equipment granted for like night vision goggles so that everybody can see they're still driving the same way that guys were driving old school uh blackout lights and then you just drive really slow and so um, we're used to as a combat unit uh you know special ops combat unit so we have all the latest gear uh you know got the best night vision that's available you know lasers optics you know all, all this stuff and they're still you know like mid 90s technology for the support units and it's like how, how do we invade a country not everybody has the correct equipment and it's just, just the funding wasn't there and the equipment hadn't been built yet um so uh we've jumped on uh on ch-47s and and you know flew up to to the marine controlled base outside nazaria on the airfield and uh did a basically you know i, I will call it you know it was a down and dirty 24-hour plan on how this was going to get done and um you know, in, in football terms, we kind of sent one of the companies from uh, 175 kind of did an end around and they went all the way east of the, of the city, way out and around. And then they came in and dropped in from the north uh, to kind of lock everything off from the north. And then our our plan was to jump on Marine Corps 46s um, and just, you know, 10 minute flight across the river, drop west of of the, the city and then uh, run in lock down the you know the main roads leading in and out of hospital and and just kind of own that as a exfiltration route and so as we're you know launching in on the on the first push of american forces to do this um the seals are are launching in on a blackhawk to to land on the hospital and and then come down and and pull her right out on the and, roof of the hospital I, I couldn't see it. Uh, I don't remember exactly that part of, of their plan. Um, but uh, I, I believe, yes, that is because there was a helipad on top of the hospital. Um, so they knew, it, so it was, everybody so knew she was in the hospital. They were in yes, the hospital. Yes, yeah. we had, you know, human intelligence from, from I, I, I can't remember the name 20 years later, but, uh, the, you know, the guy that came across and told Americans, that, hey, there's a American being held hostage in the hospital and she's in this room on this floor. And, and so, um, you know, I mean, the whole thing happened from the time we landed on the ground to the time the seals hit the hospital, they were exfilling her by the time we established our blocking positions. It was, I mean, it was fast. Um, so and it wasn't precise. that we were yeah, yeah, fast, precise. And so then, um, you know, what took the, it was the whole operation only lasted about three, 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 three and a half hours. And, and what made it take that long was because we were trying to find the, where the rest of the, that convoy element was. And so, uh, it led to, you know, um, searching and digging and, and things along those, those lines. And then we had accountability of everybody. And they had been killed. They were dead. They, they were dead. Yes. Yeah, she so was, was just the recovering living survivor. Bodies. So it was just a recovery effort to, make sure that they were accountable and, and got to come home. So then we called Xville and that was it. That was it. Yeah. Well, we come back from it and you know, the kind of the, the, um, you know, as a 21 year old, you're not really thinking about the ramifications, not the ramifications, but kind of the significance of what you've just accomplished. And, and that was the first successful POW rescue since Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. It was and, big news. It was and so everybody was all, you know, super excited about it. And, you know, guys that were, you know, my leadership, you know, um, you know, like the, the magnitude of what we just accomplished and, and the fact that we didn't, you know, for the most part, we didn't fire any shots. Uh, there were just a, a few, few shots that were, were fired. So there wasn't much resistance. There wasn't any resistance at all. Um, okay. So the and, hospital people just 
The hospital was empty. Oh, it was really? empty. We had um, eyes on the, uh, you know, intelligence gathering. Marines were watching the hospital, you know, from their positions, and and you know there were lots of people going in the hospital, and you know military people going in the hospital, and then turn around and there was a lot of civilians leaving the hospital. So what we were figuring is they were going in and taking off their military uniforms and basically surrendering, and then they were just dispersing into the population. And right. so, right. Um, there so was, they didn't want they didn't want any any trouble. Yeah, they didn't want any part of it. <laughs> and and so you know we got back and everybody was kind of high fiving and you know back slapping and you know the, the the great part of it was and you know the that you know we got to be a part of that uh, successful piece of of history that that had happened and it was you know, it didn't really hit me for a few years that you know that was something super significant it was just you know and i hate to say it this way but this is kind of the way that we all feel about these kind of things it's just another day at the office for us right and right, so right. you know as time has progressed i think of the significance of what i got to be a, a part of on the night of april 1st 2003 U.S. Marines staged a diversionary attack to draw Iraqi troops away from the hospital where Jessica Lynch was being held. Meanwhile, Joint Operations Task Force 121, comprised of members of Delta Force, Special Forces, and Army Rangers, including Sergeant Nick Moore, swung into action. According to Sergeant Moore, Special Forces cleared the hospital while he and the Rangers held the area with blocking positions to prevent potential enemy reinforcements and provide additional muscle in case of a firefight. Moore and the Rangers faced only light resistance. Inside the hospital, Green Berets discovered that Private First Class Jessica Lynch was the only U.S. captive still alive. The rest of those killed during the ambush had been buried in shallow graves. Recovery was left to the 1st Ranger Battalion. The rescue of Private First Class Jessica Lynch turned out to be the first successful rescue of a serving member of U.S. forces in approximately four decades. And so, uh, you know, push forward and then we established the operating bases there in uh, Baghdad and, and set up the initial footprint and then running around chasing the deck of cards, the uh, initial, the original 52 Um you know Saddam Uday Kuse, right. you know, and then all all the the that rest of the, the players cards, in the yeah. deck, and uh, I wish I still had one now. Yeah. <laughs> They're worth a lot uh, of money, I bet. Yeah. Well, just to you know, kind of put it up on the wall is you know I got to do this, and so um, you know victories declared, and uh, that would you know it didn't really mean anything because operations are still going on but you know presidents declared victory and right and victory like, was declared and then the war started yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it went on and on and on yeah, yeah. so same, same in afghanistan i mean it was it was it was uh it was kind of over in 2002 and then it got it, it started building up again right and you know so um the uh one of the, the companies in the battalion got got tasked so they we went to Af iraq with uh, what we call a battalion minus so we went with two of the companies and then one of the companies um ended up going over to afghanistan and they were tasked with shutting down the special operations footprint in afghanistan and so then they packed everything up and it was ready to shut it down and then they said nope unpack it we're staying and so then they had to turn around and unpack everything and reset everything back up and and then we figured out that we were going to kind of going to be in this for the long haul 
and uh you know but at that point you know early 2000 or 2003 2004 and even in 2005 in afghanistan it was you we would go over there and it's like what are we doing here we would spend a lot of time just training i mean the and what it was is that we just didn't have the same way to target in afghanistan as we were in in iraq and it just it was a technological difference in the you know infrastructure in the countries that that led to two things kind of being slow there for a while in afghanistan and you know you go from iraq and iraq is a super fast pace i mean it's like running and gunning every night uh, you know on a SWAT team in the states and in any major u.s metropolitan city i mean it is busy for for us you know like cops are serving search warrants and you know doing all their their thing on a nightly basis now you might not see it as the general public and that's kind of the same way that we were in iraq is we're just running through these cities and we're just scooping up bad guys and you know trying to dive into these networks and cells as as all this stuff is starting to develop for resistance fighting against all you know everything and and then you go to afghanistan and you're like crickets crickets <laughs> and so because the targeting was different it was a lot of uh, human intelligence based targeting in Af- afghanistan and so you have to vet that all that that information through multiple sources and some of it pans out and a lot of it doesn't pan out and then we would spin up on a lot of missions and then we'd get you know halfway to the target and they would say no scratch come back and so it's like kind of irritating on the on the shooter's part all the boys that are amped up to get on target right and then it's like okay do something then it's like yeah "Eh, why is the helicopter turning around yeah Uh, and then you go, uh, we found out it's bad intel, and so we're going to start over. And it's like, oh. Following Sergeant Nick Moore's first deployment to Iraq in 2003, came multiple deployments to both Afghanistan and Iraq as the fighting ramped up in both places and the role of the Rangers started to evolve. The 75th Rangers, of which Nick was a member, was considered an elite airborne light infantry combat formation within the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. Previously, 75th Ranger deployments added muscle to Army Special Forces, Delta Force, and teams of Navy SEALs in order to provide security and blocking positions while the Tier 1 operators executed surgical strikes on high-value targets. But as the pace of deployments quickened, and the Rangers earned the respect and confidence of their Tier 1 counterparts, they ran more side-by-side missions. The pace was relentless. Typically, the Rangers were running four to six ops a night. By 2005, Nick was a 24-year-old staff sergeant and Ranger squad leader. In late June, he received word that a four-man team was going out on a reconnaissance mission known as Red Wings, and the mountains of Kunar province of Afghanistan. At first mention, it seemed to Nick that a four-man mission in a mountainous area controlled by the Taliban was ill-advised. Uh, we were in the transitioning point uh, as far as what, what the, the roles of the Rangers were, were being, uh, what was being asked of us instead of being more of a, you know, the special operations support element to go in and plus up, you know, the the Delta Force and the SEAL teams, you know, um, to provide them outer security. Now we're being asked to kind of run the same target decks as, as them. And so, um, cause through the course of, of that year, we've kind of shown that, Hey, look, you know, just because it's not our task, it's, you know, we, we can do this. We just, 
bring more people to the table when we do it. Um, SEAL team's going to run in there with, you know, about half the numbers that a rangeable team's going to run in there with. And, and so, um, you know, we just bring more people. And so it, um, but so we when can you get talk in. about a ranger platoon, you're talking like 20 guys or? No, a ranger platoon is typically somewhere between 45 and 50. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. And and okay. so, you know, SEAL team's going to run in there with less than a lot less than that. And the same with um, um, Delta Force guys. But, you know, we, we can do the same thing. And so, um, you know, we started to work through the progressions of, you know, that. And so we were starting to, to operate on some of the same target deck. So like 2005 rolls around, there's still not a whole lot going on in the late spring summer 2005 and so uh marcus latrell seal team with uh mike murphy and danny Dietz and and matt axelson and, and those guys they were um chasing a, a target set that had been beating the crap out of the marines out in the conar and there was uh, several fatalities from from that and conar um, is uh east uh northeast it's kind of east yeah uh, yeah, near uh, the, yeah near the border yeah, it's, it's east. No, yeah. yeah, it's where the mountains kind of start climbing and it's up. North, and, north and of Kabul, right? A little uh, bit. It's north. northeast of Kabul and kind of north of like Asadabad and the little combat outposts that are that are there. So you're getting um, into the to the serious mountains there. Yeah, there. and and so uh, you know they came in and and, and had this um, this recce planned to get eyes on um, uh, what is it Ahmed Shah. And uh, and he's a high level, mid level guy. Uh, he's the he was the leader of, of his little Taliban element out there. So he had you know between two and four hundred fighters that were fighting for him. So he's you know commanding quite a, a large element. So you know they they worked out the plan to do this this reconnaissance mission, and you know they briefed it, and then we got the briefing on it, and and our recce platoon had kind of got that strange look on their face, like. You're going to go in here right in the middle of this where they just killed like 14 Marines the week before. And you're going to go in with four guys. And so, we, you know, it was like, okay, well, great. You're Navy SEALs. You know, you can do what you want. You can pitch that plan. And so we, you know, we always talk about, you know, if, if it was our mission, what would we do sitting around the dinner table? And so I, I asked, you know, one of the recce platoon sergeant who is, uh, I've known him for, you know, several years at this point in my career. And I'm, I was like, Hey, you know, what would you do if this was your mission? How would you do it? And he's like, well, I'd go in with a full recce element with a whole recce section. And I'd have one range of rifle platoon sitting, you know, three to five kilometers off that way. It's not just four people. He said, that's kind of ludicrous for, for this type of mission. He said, the terrain's terrible you know communications is even worse for um satellite communications on via radio right and, and it's hard to get get rescue in it, there it's, too. he yeah. said it's just hard and he said if you take a large element in but you don't take it all the way to the target you, you still have the ability to, yeah, to fall either back and, fight yeah. forward or yeah. fight back and, and then you have a stronger element to be able to take these on and i said okay great awesome it sounds like you know it makes sense to me and so we didn't think anything else of it. We heard they were going, and so they, you know, they were infilling, and we're like, "Hey, okay, cool. I guess we'll watch it on the TV um, through the feeds." And um, we were supposed to go to the range the next day, so we loaded up into trucks and started business as usual in the morning. And, and got you're everything. where you're you're at Bagram? we're in in Bagram, and so we used to go out to um, it's a mountain range. We call it East River Range because it's east of the base, so you have to drive through the little town of Bagram to get off the base and 
and then you just kind of drive for a few more minutes and then you're out on this big flat and so we just throw the targets and then the mountain range was the backstop for the bullets um and we're you know driving along and getting everything set up throwing target stands and targets off the truck because that was the easiest way to do it is just drive down the line and just start throwing the gear off the truck and then you just hop off and everybody spreads out and we start shooting and um <clears throat> we had no sooner throwing all the targets and everything off the truck and they said hey get back on the truck we're going back and i was like whoa are we picking this stuff up they said nope leave it just leave the uh, targets there just just leave it and i was like okay what's going on they said well we got to go back and i was like well what's going on why are we <laughs> why are we going back and they're like shut up and get on the truck <laughs> why are we going back asking too many and, uh, questions and yeah. they're like we got a helicopter that's been shot down and i was like are you serious Nick learned that on the night of June 28, 2005, the four-man SEAL Red Wings reconnaissance team had encountered heavy Taliban contact near the Suryak Valley in Kunar province. A quick reaction force comprised of members of SEAL Team 10 attempted an immediate rescue, but as they approached, their Chinook was shot down and all aboard were killed. Sergeant Nick Moore was among 30 heavily armed rangers who were tasked with securing the crash site, recovering the bodies, and searching for any remaining men from the original four-man SEAL reconnaissance team. He would soon learn that one of the four SEALs was still alive. That badly injured man was SEAL Petty Officer Marcus Luttrell, subject of the very popular book and movie Lone Survivor. Nick was among the first Rangers to reach him. And I thought it was really stupid that they weren't giving us any information because they're calling us back to, you know, be on, on quick reaction force to go in and, and right, help. We're going to find out soon enough. Yeah. Well, it, I, I would figure this out, you know, a few years down the road. Why that happens is that when, when helicopters get shot down, it is a huge, huge deal. And there are thousands of people that, have to, are trying to gather as much information as possible and so you just you know it's the guys who are going to go do something you don't need to know right now because we don't know and we're trying to figure it out so all we need you to do is to get back here and and be on standby to go when we say go and uh you know so we get back and we're sitting there and now we're all amped up because you know this is real this is happening and but we're not doing anything and <laughs> And it's like, what is taking so long? And right. and so when this down, happens, right. yeah, yeah. So when this happens, it's it's not that you know we're not going to recommit American forces into that space because we are. The problem is that we have to get enough assets over there that it becomes an unfair fight in our advantage. And so it's getting helicopter attack helicopters and and uh, fighter jets and you know all these. All of these things have to come to bear coordinated, onto, yeah, yeah, onto the state, you know, on station and, and get coordinated. And, and so, um, finally, it's you know, getting towards late afternoon, kind of early evening time frame. They said, All right, we're loading up and going. And you know, by this point, um, we've been through several rounds of, of planning on this. And they said, Okay, well, the altitudes that we're going at, you know, you you only have this much weight that you could put on the back of the helicopter because you know it's the end of june and um what people don't understand you know when we talk about aviation in, in the military is that even though these helicopters are ready to carry you know a large amount of equipment um it becomes an issue with air density and so the hotter it gets outside the you know the less dense the air is so there's less less lift 
<clears throat> for these aircraft so we have to cut the weight on the amount of people that we can bring so we were um one ranger platoon going in at i think we were rolling probably we were a little up on manning at the time and so um probably like 55 60 guys in a ranger platoon at the time and we went in with three squads of five the platoon command unit uh element and then um you know machine guns were going in just two guys per machine gun and that's normally a three-man crew so we're going in you know like 27 people spread across two helicopters and so half the half the young guys are sitting in the back you know oh they can't do anything because and it makes a cut to get on the aircraft and it's you know not that they did anything bad they just it you know it's kind of one of those things where you take the best guys that you can take and so you know that's yourself as a as a leader and then you're taking your next two you know subordinate leaders and then they each get to take one guy and you're a sergeant at this point i'm, I'm a staff sergeant at this time a, a brand new staff sergeant um so it's a ranger squad leader so i'm in command of you know between at that time i had like 11 guys i think but normally it's about nine so it's two two fire teams of four normally but we were running like two fire teams of five plus myself would make you know about 11 guys plus or minus i don't remember so you make the cut you guys are going on the helicopter right and so um we launched to go and um so people you know live in the mountains or they know anything about weather in the summertime in the mountains you know you get random weird weather patterns in the mountains so um we're flying to target and had weather's rolled in and you know we've got rain and fog and and all kinds of stuff and so the helicopters can't fly into that they have to be able to have a certain level of visibility and so we had to abort infill that night so we uh, diverted over to Jalalabad to stage at Jalalabad and you know we ended up sitting on the flight line for 24-ish hours to to be able to launch in that next night and uh, launched in just after sunset and, and what do you know about the seals at this point we knew that the helicopter was you know shot down the whole time and it was presumed based on the the feeds that there were no survivors because there wasn't anybody moving around it and that it was you know it was a fireball um, right. when, it, oh, okay. when it crashed so, so we, you, there's no communication <clears throat> with, with the guys on the ground there's no communication with anybody on the ground it's crickets on that end there's no communication with uh murphy's team and there's no communication with the, that helicopter. There's no movement outside of that helicopter. So we were assuming. So you just that, think it's going in, you're going to go in and pick up some. Right. So we're going in on basically what we call a combat search and rescue um, with the anticipation that there are no survivors, um, you know, based on all the activity that we've seen over like the 36 hours that this has been going on now. And so, you know, on the board, you just kind of, Mike Murphy's team just kind of gets a question mark. Um, because we got to deal with with these 16 Americans that have been, you know, killed in this helicopter crash. So we have to confirm deny any possible survivors out of that crash. We have to account for everybody that's in that crash. Um, so that's the tasking at hand is, you know, the crash is first. It's priority because we know where it is. We don't know where anything is going on with, with Murphy's team. Um, so, you know, we, we'll figure that out. So we knew what we were going into. Um, we knew it was going to be a, uh, well, we got to deal with the, this first and hopefully intelligence comes, you know, around or if there's any survivors out of, you know, Murphy's team, um, maybe they'll make their way up kind of towards the crash site and uh, we'll be able to link up with them. And you also uh, so, know that there's enemy in, in the area because they right, shut down this. Right. Yeah, we, yeah. we know that there's, you know, 
the potential for for a large enemy force in the area um so we finally get the clearance to launch out of jalalabad and uh launch up and they said hey we're gonna you know the only insertion is uh fast rope um so that's a big four inch diameter rope we kick out of the back of the helicopter and then slide down the rope like a fireman's pole and uh we try to do it normally in, in training and in all tactical situations we try to do it at under 40 feet um it's just easier on it's faster for us and if guys were to fall it's not they're not going to get as hurt but um this one was at 60 plus it started at 60 and then kind of as the helicopter will drift um because a static cover for helicopters never perfectly stable they're kind of they're moving around a little bit and uh, it feels like it's you know perfectly stable until you're sitting on the ground and you're staring at it and you're like wow that thing's dancing a little bit and so um <laughs> and when, you're but when you're doing that it you know yeah. when you're fast roping in at like eight thousand feet you know elevation on the ground and and you're roping in on the side of a on a ridge that rope just kind of drifts and so the the more it drifts off the the side you know the longer the rope gets and you know guys are um wearing you know leather work gloves like we're supposed to wear and uh their hands are getting burnt and they're yeah, getting, I bet. You know, blisters and so uh guys some of the guys you know get about 10 15 feet off the to the towards the bottom of the rope and and they can't hold on anymore their hands are all blistered up and so they just drop off the rope and so a lot of twisted ankles and there were uh there were a couple twisted ankles for for us uh, the other platoon that came in behind us they were the actual we were kind of the advanced party so we were there to fight through any resistance so that they could come in with the recovery equipment you know uh, body bags and and the the equipment that we carry for you know smash we have crash axes and things like that that you know have to get brought up on on target and and that that stuff's not light you know uh, popular to what people might think that stuff is it's heavy and it's cumbersome yeah, I, and it's I, I not awkward book, a body bag is weighs 35 pounds yeah it's about yeah around 35 pounds because it's a it's a thick thick lined you know heavy plastic bag and it's waterproof and because of what you know what's going in it is you know biohazardous you know human yeah, that's liquids a lot of weight. And, and things like that and i don't mean to be grotesque but um you know so you can't have those bags leaking and uh with 35 pounds you know people are like oh it's just 35 pounds well you know strap that on to the other 70 pounds of junk that you're already wearing and then let's get out of a helicopter at 8,000 feet and walk to 10,000 feet <laughs> <laughs> it hurts you know i mean it and it, it, we're acclimated i mean bogram air force base is sitting at like 5500 feet of elevation so we're not going that much but it's it's a big change it's a drastic change even even for that and, and you we're even adrenaline going and you're carrying right and then you, so you can and, you know yeah. and so we we finally get in and um you know we start walking and start now you're i'm sorry and, this is this is uh daylight or, or nighttime this is night the night of the 29th of okay June. okay so um, you drop in at night yes so the crash happened on june 28th and so with the weather delay on the night of the 28th you know we sat all day on the 29th and so this is the night of the 29th where um finally getting inserted into to be able to put american forces around this crash site and you know start making accountability and giving like visual first-hand assessment is the helicopter still burning at this point it or? is yes it is. it is oh wow it is um so we can you know we get infilled and so it was you know it's like okay where are we going and they say you see that fire yeah that's where we're going yeah <laughs> start walking Nick from 3rd Platoon, fast rope from a Black Hawk helicopter at 8,000 feet. The Chinook, they soon learned, had gone down 2,000 feet higher at the crest of the mountain. 
Now they had to climb up a small, nasty goat trail in the inky blackness of a rural Afghanistan night while carrying their regular combat gear along with heavy body bags and other equipment. Once they secured the ridge, they went about the gruesome job of recovering 16 bodies from the Chinook crash site. The only recognizable parts of the helicopter were the rotor blades and turbine engines. Then they split up and started searching for the four missing SEALs. Nick was leading a 13-man Ranger element that was joined by a Special Forces A-team when they spotted a small village ahead. And so, you know, we start walking and, you know, guys try to take off at this, you know, rabbit's pace. And it's like, that's not going to work for very long. <laughs> and so then you can see, you know, the first, the first little bit, you know, we're walking at a pretty good clip. And then and the you're pace going just, uphill. Yeah, we're going uphill. It's kinda, and it's, it's pretty, up on the ridge. It's pretty steep. Yeah. Well, it's just off the top of the ridge and we're about halfway up the ridge for this. And so I, I'm going to back up a little bit. So all of this is happening on the, on the 28th and I'm just kind of. Um, you know, put this in there. I know I, I put it in in my book as well, but so there was a ranger platoon that was um, stationed out of Jalalabad. And so when all this happened, you know, they, they just jumped in the trucks and they took off. They said, Hey, we're not waiting for you to ask us to go. We're going. And so they started driving um, up there to the base of the mountain. And so then they're um, in the bottom of the valley in the big valley. And so then they literally started walking up the mountain, the entire mountain, to get to the top. And so, I mean, even with that, you know, a whole 24 hours of, you know, of that, they still hadn't even made it as high as we had gotten being inserted. And so, and they wouldn't show up for another day. Oh my God. If, so if that tells you how bad, how bad it was walking up there. And, and they left um, all their trucks and stuff. And, not- down at the bottom well no they they the the gun crews and so the vehicle crews they stayed on the truck so driver gunner and then one other individual and so what they did was uh once they did the the infiltration for those guys to drop off then they turned around and took the trucks back to uh jalalabad Uh, they could have went to camp blessing i'm not sure uh it um it wasn't it's kind of a moot point um where they they went and i know they didn't sit down there for two weeks so they're they're walking up and we've finally got infield and now we're starting our walk and you know we're walking towards the fire and maybe about an hour before sunrise when we finally get up on the top and and kind of push through and secure what we are calling the objective area and so we own the top of the ridge um where all this stuff is happening and and we've got guys that have swept through and make sure there's no fighters hiding in wait and and then you know we just locked down our platoon was responsible to lock down the entire perimeter and so we locked it down and then waited and then as the sun had you know come up the other platoon had finally started to make their way onto the objective and and they there was no rest for them they didn't stop they just kind of they just pushed through they pushed through gave the you know uh, platoon sergeant and pl at the time they gave the guidance of what needed to be done and the boys started to go to work and you know come about Oh, noon one local, you know, we had everybody accounted for. And how many people had been on that? Uh, there were 16. 16. Wow. Wow. And they all died. There were no survivors. Yeah, there was no survivors. Um, and so the, then the next, the next tasking that came was, um, you know, we have to make a way for these guys to get out of here. So we started, uh, um, we had a small clearing that we could 
fit a small helicopter on, but it wasn't anything big enough to get, you know, a transport helicopter in to get the remains out. So we ordered a supply pallet of explosives and started blowing trees off the mountain and created a, a, an HL, a helicopter landing zone large enough for a CH-47 to come in and, and be able to load the remains. So that's and the way so, you do it. You just, you just start clearing an area. Yeah. And in this, yeah, even if there hadn't have been a clearing, we would have made one. And so we had just finished our, uh, our breachers training course. And so we don't always use like timber charges and, and things like that. It's very rare that we actually do. Um, but since we had just finished the course, it was fresh in everybody's mind. It's just something that we always train on when we teach people how to do this. Cause it's a very basic task, but it's also a very complicated task. You know, it's like being a lumberjack and falling a tree the correct way, but instead of using an ax and a chainsaw and wedges, we're using explosives to do it. So there's a few more tricks, um, to doing it with explosive, yeah, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's, we have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of. <laughs> something that kept us from thinking about what had just happened and you know right and so these... far there's no you, there's you don't see any re resistance at all there's no there's there's nothing i mean we're not seeing anybody uh up there so we're like okay awesome i guess nobody wants to play and um so we finished that up and and uh you know come late uh, late afternoon early evening sun's still up um finally got clearance to bring in the uh the helicopter to um load the remains on and, and fly them out and uh so then they flew out and then we had uh got the basically the the daily intelligence dump for what was going on and there was a random uh push to talk that had been triangulated that it was somewhere down the mountain like a walkie talkie almost uh well it was one of our radios and so they were somebody was just pushing the the push button to to key it, not Morse code or anything, but they were just pushing it. And so, um, after so many times of doing that, you, you could use technology to triangulate the location or, or an approximate location. And so that, that location got passed up and, and then we got tasked with, uh, 10 to two platoon or two squads, uh, and our platoon leaders element down, down the mountain that night to, um, figure out what was going on. And so, you know, like we were saying earlier, mountain weather comes in. So we ended up walking down the mountain in this massive rainstorm. And, uh, and you haven't slept, right? No, not really. I mean, we've caught a few little catnaps here and there. Um, but, you know, it's uh, kind of the best thing to do in situations like that is to not stop doing things. And it's not because you just want to run on adrenaline. But, when, you know, when you have downtime, then you're mind starts actually thinking about you know the ramifications of, of what is just happened here and so um, if you can keep the boys busy and keep them doing things then their mind doesn't think about you know what's what just happened there right, and I just you picked know up we a just bunch of bodies on and, helicopters and, and we're gonna hell. fly out on helicopters and yeah um so interesting so you just keep moving <clears throat> so keep just busy. keep moving and so and yeah and so uh we got the tasking and started walking and you know the rain and it's coming down and it's it's wet and slick and you know um we almost lost a couple of guys off the side of the ridge and, and it was like hey uh we might want to stop for a while because uh nate almost fell off the mountain and you know that's all we need to do is you know have somebody else that now we have to go find somebody else right one of our own right and uh right. <clears throat> so we held up underneath some some of the big mountain pine trees there 
for the last couple hours of night and just shaking and shivering. I guess is you know we're wet and we're hot and sweaty from from walking, but we're also soaking wet. And then when you stop moving, then it's just miserable. Um, and so guys try to catch a little bit of sleep, but you can't really catch any sleep. And so uh, you just kind of turning your head, looking under your night vision, and and just seeing what's out on the landscape. And you know, there were some little spot fires, uh, little camps, and and things like that. And we were assuming they were you know, Taliban or or farmers with goats. You know, they'll push the goats up in the mountains and let them graze on whatever grass and vegetation is up there that they'll eat. And um, and all you're going on is this pinging of this radio. Right, this, and, you know, and a, yeah. and a grid that we had. That we're basically walking to a grid down to this little village and, and uh, you know, trying to and find the answer to, you know, is this uh, American equipment in control, you know, by Taliban fighters or, right, which it could or, be, yeah. you know, is it just yeah. people who just happened to cross it and, you know, do they know what happened to these, in, to the individuals that are still missing and, right. And, and there's still they, no word from, right. From the there's, seal. there's no word from, from, uh, Mike Murphy's seal team. It's just, you know, there's no comms at all. Um, and so, um, push down and there was a special forces team that had, infilled at the same time as as the ranger platoon and they had come up a different um spur on the mountain and trying to to see which way was the fastest you know split force type type deal and so we tied in with them after the sun came up and the and the rain stopped and you know we're kind of trying to dry our gear out for just a few minutes we got food coming in on a on a a cargo delivery system so a big pallet of gears get kicked out of the back of the c-130 and we're just kind of waiting for breakfast to show up and uh try our gear out before we keep walking and uh so we tie in with them have a little bit of something to eat got got dried off a little bit and and kitted back up and and then started walking down to the to the little village and um and what size village are we are we talking like oh it's it's tiny i mean we're talking you know maybe a one or two city blocks it's not, I mean, it's nothing big, you know, maybe, maybe a hundred people, 200 people. Okay. Uh, and it's so, all like sheep herders. It, it's, you know, they're farmers. So they terrace the side of the mountains and they'll farm and agriculture and, and, you know, and that stuff. And so we start, uh, Rangers don't do the, the, the nice ask questions first and then right, look that's, later. That's, we just smash things and, that's and, the special and forces guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we let the special forces guys, you know, go talk to the village elders. And then so me and the boys and, and my, uh, my buddy, Jason is the other squad leader, his, his squad, we start kicking indoors and, you know, we're speaking English. Where's the Americans? Where's the Americans? They're <laughs> right. speaking Pashto and Farsi and, you know, whatever else they're speaking over there. And so they don't believe some things all you can do is just point so we're just start pointing to our on the shoulder to our american flag and like where is he where is he you know where are they so then they figured out what we were doing why we were there and so then the, the village uh people kind of helped marcus um up from where they were hiding him from the taliban and uh they brought him up up to us and so when we stopped smashing stuff and went over to the sf guys and we're like hey you probably got to pay for a few doors yeah yeah right um right and uh you know then we started you know asking marcus you know questions and how after was marcus what, what condition was he in uh he's he was walking i'm i'm sure he had you know some injuries we knew he uh had been shot in the <laughs> in the back end 
uh, and some bruises and scrapes. Yeah, and... he was you know pretty bruised up, um, but you know he's walking under his own power. It's just um, you know come to find out you know later you know he, he had a, from falling and, and all that stuff he had cracked a, a, a vertebrae or two or something in his back. And uh, but you know he was walking on his own power. Was just still had real... his, was he still armed? Was he still have he didn't have equipment? a he didn't have his rifle. He had his uh, tactical gear, and and then his so and then that that led us to that. Okay, so that was his radio. And so uh, you know the medics went over and you know kind of did what they could do for him and and all that stuff. And so then we started at, you know asking questions. You know hey where what happened? You know where. And so then he starts explaining, you know, what happened. And, you know, then the question is, okay, well, if you're here, where's everybody else? And he goes, they're dead. I was like, okay, but where? He's like, and he just points up on the side of the mountain. He goes, they're, they're up there. I was like, can you be a little bit more specific? And he's like, nope. What was his mental state? I mean, he was coherent, if that's what you're asking. And, um, but you could tell that he was kind of law, I guess, he was in his own thoughts about what what had happened and you know he's he's trying to think and and you know but he's been in a running gunfight and you know and then he comes in and he tells us that okay well while you guys were you know weathered out and you know the the 29th the taliban actually came down here and they grabbed him up and they took him up on the mountain they showed him all the fighting positions and said you know when your friends come in here to get you we're gonna you know shoot him down too and and all this stuff and the Talib, he's saying that the Taliban had grabbed him. Right. They came into the village and they, they grabbed him at gunpoint and, and threatened the, the villagers that if they didn't let him take him, but uh, then he would, you know, they were going to kill everybody in the village. So they, they let him take him. And, but there's part of Afghan culture. Um, I don't remember the exact term. Oh, Pashtun Wali. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Pashtun Wali, where they're responsible for him now because they've, accepted him into the village and they've offered him care and attention. And so then they are by their culture, they're required to fight for him. And so the Taliban knew that as well. And so that's why, you know, after they did their thing with him and kind of threatened him, trying to intimidate him about what was going to happen when everybody else came in, um, then they, they brought him back and they handed him back over. And that's when they decided they were to hide him. And so he was kind of in a uh, root cellar type, Type. So the villagers were hiding him. Right. And so he Taliban was kind of down yeah. in the bottom of the draw and a little root cellar type thing that they had down there. And they were just kind of keeping him, you know, out of the village, but, you know, safe. And so when we got down and there feeding him and stuff. Right. And so we start trading, you know, information, you know, with him and, you know, he's explaining all this stuff that that's happened. And, um, you know, we're passing information back up the mountain to our, our guys. And so then that, that basically, you know, we're tasked with just babysitting him and, and securing that, that village until, um, nightfall when they can fly in the medevac helicopter, put him on the medevac and, and fly him out. And so, and then that starts the, you know, that, so we're two days into this op now. And so that starts 12 more days of us. 12 more days combing this mountainside, looking for, three missing Navy SEALs who are presumed, you know, dead, according to Marcus. Um, and so... And he um, has no idea where they are. He, he he knows, you know, generally they're they're up from him, so they're up on the mountain. So what happened was is we had our small element where we were, and the rest of our element was on the top. So then those guys were climbing from the top of the mountain halfway down, and we were climbing from the bottom halfway up and meeting in the middle. 
and so that would one pass would take about all day and so then you know we were combing through all of this and you know leadership is keeping track of what what sections of the mountains that we've covered and um uh we thought we were going to be real quick about it um because the the first time that we had the first day that we actually searched so it'd be like the 30th um you know, as we're searching through, or actually it's probably uh, July 1st, you know, um, we're, we make our first push halfway up the mountain and, and tie in with the guys coming from the from the top down and, you know, high five and, hey, I haven't seen you in a couple of days. How's it going? You know, kind of have a five minute break and, and just talk with your you know, friends and, and stuff. And then, you know, split back, they go back up the mountain and they, we turn around, come back to the bottom. And as they're going back up to the top, you know, they stumble across um, um, two of them. And uh, um, it was just stupid luck. Somebody happened to slide into a little a little wash. I uh, lost his footing and, and fell in. And unfortunately for him, you know, he's like laying on top of him face to face. Oh God! And it's uh, so I've, I felt bad for for those guys because they had found him, and so they're still going up in elevation to get back to the top. So now they've got to carry two two sets of remains all the way up to the top and then they have to carry them down the ridge to the helicopter landing zone and then we've got to get the helicopter back into to medevac those remains out and and then you know now it's looking for one person one person on the side of a mountain and, and it's you know so we just searching 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 and um there's a little small spur kind of in the middle of this bigger draw this big draw is kind of wise as as the mountain came up and so we had searched for a couple of days um on the side where the village was where we had picked up marcus and so we thought well maybe we need to take part of the element and and shift over to the other side because he couldn't remember where anybody was and you know guys get separated in, in this type of a gunfight in this kind of terrain and if he slipped and fell and nobody saw it you know he might be over here so we were spending on the other side and so we just spent a, a day or so and and kind of searched that other side and, and said well he's he's not here and so then we just kept continuing to search and so um at, at this time you know in the big picture of everything that's going on our our uh deployment window had ended and we're on the side of this mountain and so our uh, replacement battalion with uh, third ranger battalion had just showed up and so they were getting kitted up and and briefed up on what's so going you were, on, on the you ground were supposed and, to leave leave afghanistan yeah and so um you know we're 10 days into this now um and you know we're, we're worn out the the guys some of the guys have gotten sick and because at this point we're not getting bottled water dropped in for us or anything we're just kind of you know trying to purify our own water through the mountain stream systems and i think some of the guys didn't quite get the mix of you know uh, iodine drops to quarts of water correct yeah. and so they yeah. kind of gotten the the runs yeah that's not good and, and you yeah. know upset stomach and i got sick too but i had eaten a bad mre so i had food poisoning for about 14 hours oh god so you know all this is going on third battalion's getting getting their stuff together and getting straightened up and we're trying to work out you know the the relief in place on the side on the mountain and and all this stuff and finally the call comes that hey you're out tonight um and so we pushed over to where we could get a helicopter in on our location and and uh third battalion guys jumped off we jumped on flew back and um it was about you know after everybody had gotten back um um, from our platoon and our company, uh, it was probably about maybe eight hours. Um, they had they had recovered the the final uh, 
missing American that, I, and it just happened. It, it just was in a place that we hadn't looked yet, and they were fresh eyes and were weren't taking the assumptions that that we were from firsthand right. accounts. And they were just kind of going, okay, well, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And you know, they're looking at it like uh, you know, first battalion or uh, you know, first platoon and third platoon Charlie Company have have searched this much area, and so they're okay. Well, there's no point in searching that again. So let's look you know, just outside of where they had searched and they found him, you know, right, pretty much right away. And so, um, and how these guys had died, just gunshot wounds. Yeah. Okay. So from, from your perspective, um, was it a big battle that had taken place? Was there like a a evidence of a, a lot of combat? No, no, not, not from our perspective of, of what we had seen, you know, of, you know, according to what was, passed over on the radio from from Murphy when when everything was first jumping off for them versus you know even when the helicopter got shot, shot down you know we found a lot of um, Soviet brass and and things like that from you know machine guns and and them shooting but not so much uh, on the uh, um, NATO American 556 you know um, M4 ammunition or, or pistol ammunition or anything like that uh, it, um, it it wasn't there or at least we just didn't see it. So they were probably, it sounds like they encountered the enemy and it was over pretty quickly. It wasn't like a prolonged battle that went on. Um, you can still pull up some of the feeds or, or some of the video clips are still available on YouTube. You can you can search it and you can actually see it and hear the gunfight that's going on. Um, it's it's not, it's nothing graphic, nothing, nothing's shown. It's just from the Taliban's perspective of what, you know, they're doing. And so... Um, so that that was that. Now, when you saw the movie, what what was your reaction? Oh, I I fought not watching that for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I I was at a uh, advanced non commissioned officers course when uh, I finally decided to try and and read Marx's book because we had a school got shut down for a day and I went into town and sat at Barnes and Noble drinking coffee and I was like, well, let's give this a try and I was just I was like, well, I tried reading it, and I read a little bit of it, and then I put it back on the shelf, and I was like, well, I don't need to read it. I lived it. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I give Hollywood its its credit with, you know, they can dramatize things and add things. You know, it's based on a true story, but I, I think the end of the movie is not the way it should have been. I think it had a better dramatic effect if you actually had shown, you know, the actual course of events that ha- that happened and the amount of effort that that went into, you know, <clears throat> yeah, finding him and yeah, <clears throat> well, just recovering everybody, not not just the helicopter, but the amount of of effort that was put into, you know, finding you know not only Marcus but you know uh, Murphy, Dietz, and Axelson, and and making sure that they came home. Did you ever see Marcus after that? Uh, no, no. Uh, I did the Warfighter segment on this piece, you know, a few years ago um, at with the History Channel, and, and just timing work out. Um, he filmed his piece the the day before we filmed ours, um, and, and I mean ours. I mean uh, myself, Brian, and Mario um, came in and, and and filmed it. And uh, I, I personally don't hold any animosity to the no, guy. No, of course not. Um, yeah, he was clearly. Uh deeply affected by whatever happened yeah and whatever and yeah. so yeah you know and 
so that's you know that that's that story from from my perspective on on my side of of sitting there on the on the ground and and you know enjoying two weeks on the side of a mountain (laughs) (laughs) after rescuing marcus luttrell and confirming his identity nick and his fellow rangers asked him about the location of the rest of his four-man SEAL reconnaissance team. Luttrell told them how the SEALs had shifted their observation post early on to better see their target, but that he and his teammates had been compromised by goat herders who had stumbled upon their new location. Their decision to release the locals would, Marcus informed them, have dire consequences. Luttrell was unable to give them even the most general location, of where the SEALs had encountered the enemy. Still, Nick and his ranger colleagues scoured the mountain for two more weeks until they were able to identify and recover the bodies of Luttrell's teammates. Petty Officer Danny Dietz, Petty Officer Matthew Axelson, and Team Leader Lieutenant Michael Murphy. We thank Nick Moore for his incredible tenacity and bravery and his wonderful book, Run to the Sound of Guns. He's today's hero behind the headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Please subscribe, and don't forget to tune into the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines.